electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right. Thanks very much, Scott. I will respectfully disagree with Brandon Copeland and go with my Niners for the Super Bowl champion. Anyway, I'm Dominic Chu, everybody. I'm in for Kelly Evans today on The Exchange. Here's what's ahead on the show. Rate cuts are coming, and they're coming fast. That's been the theme out there on Wall Street for so far this week and quite some time. But one of our next guests sees it differently. He doesn't see a rate cut until the fourth quarter of next year. He does see a significant slowdown ahead for the economy. And given what we just heard from FedEx, could he be right? He's here to make the case coming up. Plus, the office sector has been hit hard by higher rates, but one analyst says it's also been given a rare opportunity. He joins us with what he means by that and how you can take advantage of it. And, excuse me, positioning for the new year, our market guest is looking overseas for opportunities. She tells us where and what she's buying with those themes. But first, we begin with the markets right now, which are just about kind of near their session highs right now. At some point today, we did see the Dow hit a record intraday high level. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ both hit one-year-plus high levels. Currently, you can see there the Dow Industrial is up about two-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 up about roughly the same amount and about a one-third percent gain for the NASDAQ Composite Index. As for the 10-year yield, we've been seeing some movement. It's still below that 4% mark, but at one point today, got as low as about 3.87%, currently just about 3.892%. And by the way, if you look at it in terms of rates, it's one way professionals do. But if you want to look at it in terms of price appreciation, that coincides with the kind of rate move lower that we've seen. Take a look at the TLT. This is the iShares longer-term treasury bond ETF. If you look at that chart and that last half of that chart from the lows that we saw back in October to what you see today, that move higher for a U.S. government bond fund is up 21%, 21% just since October 23rd. So what you're talking about when rates go from say, 5% down to 3.89% is a 20% return on some long-term U.S. government bonds, stock-like returns for the equity markets translated into bonds. And then for the stock mover of the day, check out what's happening with FedEx. It's tanking right now just about down, so about 11%. It's been holding near that level pretty much since the opening bell. This on some disappointing quarterly numbers from earnings and profits. They also lowered their revenue guidance for the full year. They see some at least demand slowdown. Could that be an economic bellwether type theme that we see later on? New data today throwing cold water on expectations for aggressive rate cuts next year. Consumer confidence is surging in December with the expectations index, which measures consumers shorter term outlook for income, for business, for the labor market conditions. It's soaring to 85.6. That's, by the way, a level that we haven't seen since July. Existing home sales also rose expect, unexpectedly, rebounding from five straight months of declines. So our next guest says the economy still has decent momentum, and he doesn't expect any rate cuts until the fourth quarter of next year. Joining us now is Stephen Stanley, the chief U.S. economist over at Santander. 
U.S. capital markets. Also, CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is with us as well. Uh, as I often do, we have two Steves, so I'll try to keep it as plain and clear as possible. Steve Leisman, can you please lay out the general story for us with regard to the rate picture that we are seeing and some of the late-breaking commentary from certain Fed officials about what the outlook for the economy is? Sure enough, Dom. Uh, so there's two different tales of the market here or the outlook for, the Fed, for Fed rates. The first one is the one the Fed gave us, which looks as an average of three rate cuts next year. None of it promised, all of it kind of just an average forecast where they're going to look at things as they go along. The other one, though, is the one in the market. And this is really quite dramatic. Take a look here, uh, Dominic, at the, at the futures market outlook. And you can see they have six rate cuts built in. So you know the story. Give them an inch, they take a mile. Give them three rate cuts, they'll take six. So you see the, 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 the funds rate going down from the current 538 pretty much step by step. Almost every meeting, maybe one doesn't, has a rate cut. Those are the probabilities right there. But the other chart we have has the, uh, the futures market uh, priced each, each, each meeting or just about after each meeting. There it is. You can see we go all the way down. Count it up, Dom. 385. We have Harker on the tape saying he doesn't think the Fed's going to cut soon, but he does believe the Fed is done hiking at this point. He believes the economy is resilient, a bit in line with Stephen's idea or Stephen Stanley's idea of the resilience of the economy. And I want to hear Stephen's idea because I, I have some disagreements with it and some agreements. So I'm interested in his, in, in his outlook. That's perfect because we do have Stephen Stanley right there next to you in the TV monitor. So Stephen Stanley, given what we just heard from Steve, some of the comments from uh, Harker uh, with regard to the state of the U.S. economy and expectations for Fed rate policy next year. Is there a scenario where we do see more of a marked slowdown in the U.S. economy in the coming year, contrary to the data that we've seen so far in the last several months? Well, it's certainly possible. I mean, I, I do think the consumer is going to cool off over the course of 2024. Um, but as you mentioned, I, I feel like the economy has a good amount of momentum currently. I mean, we had a 5% GDP quarter in, in Q3, um, and it looks like Q4 is shaping up pretty um, healthy as well. So I, I think the economy will, will do okay next year, but it's going to be losing steam as the year progresses. Um, once the economy gets to a slow rate of growth, it takes a lot less to knock it over. So if there's a shock that hits the economy at some point next year at a point where growth was already pretty weak. There, there, there's your recession scenario. So, Stephen, I'm going to hold you up right there, Stephen Stanley and Steve Leisman, because we're going to throw it out there to Rick Santelli out at the CME in Chicago because 20 year bonds are up for auction. And Rick Santelli is tracking the action from out there. Uh, we're curious because this is where the rubber meets the road. We're putting a price tag, if you will, on all of these growth and macro expectations. What happened with the auction? It was not a pretty auction, Don, but we want to put an asterisk here on two issues. One issue is the one issue market was very volatile, meaning prices were running up and yields were falling the last 20 minutes rather aggressively before the auction buttoned up. And the second thing is individual auctions, whether they go great or horrible, doesn't really affect the markets on a day-to-day -day basis. It's more of a macro issue. And on this one, D as in dog, 13 billion reopened 20s, adding to an issue we opened uh, primarily uh, for the first uh, offering one month ago. So technically, it's a 19-year, 11-month security. The yield on those 13 billion 20 years, 4.213. 
and that was much higher than the one issued market. But just to tell you, in the last five minutes of the one issued market, it went from 422 down to 419, very volatile. It made this auction almost impossible to turn out well. So it tailed, but that wasn't the worst of it. The bid to cover uh, was the uh, lowest since March of 23. The Direct bidders was the only upside to this auction, best since September, not that long ago. Uh, the dealers, and this is what really gave it the negative grade along with pricing, Dom, the dealers took almost 13% of the auction. That's the most they've taken of a 20-year since October of 22. Now, you see the intraday chart of uh, the 20s. Uh, that shouldn't be your only metric to gauge an auction, but yields are moving up, price moving down. And if you open the chart up, this is basically on pace, or it was, for the lowest yield close going back about five months to the end of July. We want to continue to monitor all Treasury securities and securities in Europe. Many securities around the globe are moving into the same patterns because their central banks and their inflationary outlooks are very similar, even though they're not exactly matching up. They certainly do rhyme. Now, this is a one-off auction. The 20 years happen basically once a month, and we are not going to see other auctions, of course, till uh, we come back for the new year. Dom, back to you. Rick, if I might just follow up with regard to the demand picture that you just spoke of, you mentioned that the dealers had to take down a much larger chunk of the offering than they normally would or have on average. We've also seen rates come down markedly on the longer end of the yield curve between 10 and 30 years. Is there a sense right now, speaking with the traders that you do often, that the rates have now gotten to a point where because there's been so much bidding up that maybe they just aren't as attractive right now? Uh, you know, the, the argument seems to be depending on which part of the curve you're looking at. When it comes to a two-year note uh, at 440, many traders think there's some room to run there. But when they look at longer-dated Treasury issues like a 30-year flirting with 4% or a 10-year that actually is well below 4%, they believe long-dated Treasury yields are a bit too low, and the opportunities to get long at these levels doesn't seem to make financial sense. That seems to be the issue. So it's more of a yield curve perspective, Dom. All right. Rick Santelli with the 20-year auction there. Thank you very much for that. Let's get back to Stephen Stanley and Steve Leisman as well. Uh, Stephen Stanley, you heard Rick's report, the, the grade he gave the particular auction I wonder if you can translate for us the action that you've seen with regard to the U.S. government bond market face-to-face vis-a-vis with what you're seeing right now with the economic picture and forecast that you have. Is it safe to say that the markets are very aggressive with regard to first half of the year interest rate cuts, given what we've seen so far from data and the bond market? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, as Steve laid out, I mean, the, the markets are assuming a very uh, quick turn uh, with easing coming as soon as March. Um, it's interesting, though, if you look at the financial markets in, the t in their totality, we've had a huge rally in treasuries, which is consistent with the Fed cutting rates. But at the same time, risk markets have done very well. The stock market has done well. Risk spreads in the fixed income world are, are narrowing. So it feels like financial market participants are um, nearly euphoric. They're expecting the perfect world in which the economy does okay, uh, but, the, but the Fed is still cutting rates aggressively. Stephen, there's also one other point here as well. What we've seen in equity markets over the course of this, the last several weeks is this massive move higher, this catch-up trade, if you will, in small-cap U.S. equities, arguably some of the more rate-sensitive parts of the U.S. economy and market, because they tend to not do as well when the broader economic story is not as good. 
What do you make of the fact that there's so much optimism in a part of the market that is so susceptible to the broader macro narrative in the U.S. economy? Yeah, I think, again, it's telling you that um, the the rally in interest rates isn't so much because investors think we're going to get a recession. Um, what what this is really hinging on, I think, is that the, a continuation of the steep moderation that we've seen in inflation over the next few months. And um, you know, I I, I don't want to be the party pooper here, but I, I, I'm a little bit skeptical that inflation is going to continue to come down as fast as it has over the past few months. If that doesn't happen. It seems to me something's got to give, either on the uh, rate side or, or on the uh, risk market side. And Steve Leisman, we will give you the final word here. What's the most important thing on your radar in the next, say, three to four weeks for the U.S. economic calendar and or microeconomic company calendar? Well, there's three things I'm going to be watching for. The first is inflation. The second is inflation. And the third is inflation. Those are the three things that will determine whether or not Stephen Stanley's right and this trajectory of lower inflation continues. And it's obviously not just one month's worth of data. Uh, we get a big number on Friday, but we're going to have to watch several months' worth of data. That's where I kind of disagree a little bit with Stephen with this idea that if we have several months, say January, February, March, I, I think March is a stretch for the Fed to cut. But let's say April comes in at a relatively benign number, and you've had four more months of that, I think the Fed could probably shave a quarter point off of it. The other thing that is really interesting to me that I'm thinking a lot about, Dom, is this. One of the things I think it was unremarked in Powell's uh, press conference was this pivot that had to do with his outlook on how inflation comes down. He has for a very long time called for the need for the, the economy to run below potential in order to bring inflation down. I thought he kind of backed off that a little bit during the press conference. And the idea that we can have low inflation in part because of supply chain restoration or whatever else is going on or the Fed uh, adding to that with its, with its restrictiveness, um, that means that th that's where the brilliant Stephen Stanley would be wrong, that we could have stronger growth and low inflation at the same time. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily have to have something give. And I know that that's in part a leap of fate. It's, it's about like saying to somebody, to a pilot that, hey, at a thousand feet or 500 feet, cut the engines and you'll land. The idea that there is no sacrifice between high inflation uh, and, and, lower, uh, and lower growth uh, it, 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 it is something that most economists or even any economist would tell you is wrong. But it may be that this time it seems to be what we've had so far. And I'm kind of hopeful that's what we might have next year. All right. The conversation rages on. Stephen Stanley, thank you very much. Steve Leisman as well. We'll see you guys soon. Let's turn now to the office space industry, which has been hit hard by a trifecta of higher rates, also remote, remote work and also tighter lending standards as well. But our next guest says the sector has also been given a rare opportunity, and he is bullish on three names in particular from here. Let's now bring in Alexander Goldfarb, Managing Director and Senior REITs Analyst over at Piper Sandler. Alexander, thank you very much. You hopefully had just been listening to the conversation that we've had with Stephen Stanley, Steve Leisman, and Rick Santelli about the rates picture and the economics, at least macro side of things. The office story has been hit for fundamentally good reasons because there are so many things that are headwinds right now. But when can you call a bottom and why have you done so now? So first, thanks you for having me on and always enjoy listening to economists and you certainly get a lot of different views there. You know, here at Piper Sandler, when we looked at office, 
we're not necessarily calling a bottom in terms of that everything is fine in office land. Uh, quite the contrary. What we're doing is trying to articulate that just like the malls went through a transition uh, over the past decade of gravitating towards the top tier versus all other malls, the same is happening in office. So when you look in New York today, for example, one Vanderbilt, if you try to lease space there, you better show up with uh, more than $200 in your pocket because rents there well exceed 200 a foot. By contrast, if you have sort of a, a cheap building, let's say over on Second Avenue, your life is really tough these days because no one wants to be there. So what's happening is Park Avenue right now is one of the hottest, is probably the hottest submarket today, given the Grand Central proximity. Rents are going up. In fact, we were talking uh, with the owners of 280 Park, which is a joint venture of SL Green and Vornado. They have no more space there. And that was a building just a few months ago that a lot of people were thinking we're going to have debt issues. Now, it, all that space has been occupied. So my point is that people need to understand that office will survive, but the top tier will survive. The lesser assets, that's where the issues are. And that's why we're bullish on names like SL Green, Hudson Pacific, and Newmark, which is a commercial broker that's benefited immensely from this whole need for real estate to restructure itself. Alexander, you're talking about uh, a niche narrative right now because all of those places that you've referred to occupy maybe 30 square blocks of New York City real estate and the landlords, tenants, and brokers that kind of go along with that story. Is it just those guys right now that's the opportunity? Is it just those particular REITs that have a heavy office space presence within, say, midtown Manhattan? And how exactly does that translate into the underperformance elsewhere in the country for office REITs? And which ones do you think are the ones that are going to lag the most compared to the top picks that you just laid out? Well, I'll give you a perfect analogy. Simon Property Group, right? Largest small company in the U.S., they only own 120 malls, and collectively their portfolio is only 220 assets domestically. Yet everyone thinks that they own malls everywhere. The point is there are over a thousand malls in the country. There's a you know a fraction of that, a minority of that that truly matter. Office is no different, right? So you talk about you know a limited market. Manhattan is 400 million square foot market. Probably 150 million is where people focus on. And when you look at what's happening to New York. Proximity to commuting, right? Amenities in the building, an ability for the landlord to not only pay for the building's upkeep and modernization and improvements of tenant space, but also to pay the brokers on time. So it really consolidates it down. And what that does is it drives leverage to the landlords. That's why when you hear people like SL Green, they have a, a leasing pipeline right now, 1.2 million square feet. It's one of the largest they've ever had. At the same time, you're correct. You absolutely hear stories of buildings struggling and you know, possibly going back to the lenders. But let's not forget, they just recently sold a nearly vacant building at 625 Madison for 1,100 a foot. That blew out the market. No one was expecting it. So it shows you that, yes, we're talking about a minority of buildings, but those are the buildings that truly matter. All right. The REIT outlook on the office side of things from Alexander Goldfarb. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, sir. Thanks for having us on. All right. Well, coming up on the show, the FXI China large cap ETF is trading at the lowest level since last November. But our next guest sees value in the wreckage, and she has one under-the-radar China trade and play that she's especially bullish on from here. She tells us why, which one, and of course the story next. Plus, Mizuho's Jared Hole says healthcare returns will be harder to come by in the new year, but he has 
three names in particular that are better positioned than the rest of the group. He joins us ahead. And as we head out to break, let's get a quick check on the markets overall. The markets are modestly higher, just about one-tenth of one percent for the Dow Industrials, up 53 points, 37,610. But what we did hit in the last couple of hours was a record intraday high for the Dow, one-year highs for the S&P 500 and NASDAQ Composite. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Investors are bailing on the China trade with the China large cap ETF, that ticker FXI, falling to its lowest level since November of 2022. It's down about 18 percent in 2023 so far this year on pace for a third consecutive down year. Meanwhile, the Shanghai Composite's down 6 percent for a second straight year in the red. Despite those numbers, our next guest is bullish on China and says it's the only bright spot in the investing landscape as we see it now. Joining me now is Gina Sanchez, the chief market strategist at Lido Advisors, also a CNBC contributor as well. Gina, always great to have you here. Let's talk a little bit about the reasons why China has been an underperformer, why investors have soured on it so much for, 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 right, for good, good reason, I think, overall, given the narrative that we've seen out of communist China and the economy there. But why is it that people should feel good about a China story, given the fact that we've seen so much negativity out there and may still see it in the future. So the big challenge with China was that they had such severe policies throughout COVID, keeping them in lockdown far longer than the rest of the world. And so while, you know, the U.S. experienced its reopening somewhere in 2021 and 2022, you know, China was still solidly locked down, expected to reopen, but that expectation was never met. So now we're starting to see the beginnings of China reopening after the rest of the world has pretty much gotten back to normal. Uh, we've seen interest rates rise throughout the world um, and, in fact, looking at the rest of the world slowing while China is in the process of reopening. And what we know about the reopening is there's always a boom. There is a tremendous amount of pent up demand, pent up travel, pent up purchases that will all begin to hit the Chinese economy. And so while the economy has been lagging, there's a lot to look forward to while the rest of the world is slowing. Okay. How exactly then does an investor play that particular theme outside of just, say, using an ETF that tracks the broader Chinese large cap market? 
Well, look, so there are ADRs that you can look at if you don't want to trade directly um, in China. And some of those ADRs are names you know really well. Alibaba, you know, this is a this is the, the biggest consumer name. But one of the names that, you know, that's interesting to us right now is is Auto Home. Auto Home is China's you know, basically online presence for, re, for car purchases. Auto purchases, China as an auto purchaser over the last decade went from being at the bottom of the top 10 to the top of the top 10 by a massive margin. Um, China's consumption uh, of automobiles has continued and not surprisingly, as its, as its economy is starting to reopen, this is one of those purchases um, that's coming around. And, you know, in September, we saw that they hit, you know, the highest level that they've hit in, in history. And I think that that's going to continue for a little bit of time. And, you know, this is, this is just one of those spaces that's interesting. Gina, what if investors do not want to, say, dip their toes in that China trade so far, even though it's of your opinion that it's the best and only real trade out there right now. Are there other stock picks that you seem to think will outperform in 2024? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I, I found the, the conversation you just had about, uh, you know, you ask 10 economists what's going to happen and you'll get 10 answers. Um, and, and I think that, and, and I have my own view, obviously, you know, we actually think that interest rates are going to stay higher than are priced into the markets because the markets are so optimistic right now about rate cuts. Um, we think that investing in companies that can survive, you know, that, that can survive higher rates, that have, you know, less sensitivity to the, to the market, but also can withstand, quite frankly, higher yield competition. One of those is AbbVie. If you look at AbbVie, this is a company that, that basically was spun out with one single blockbuster, Humira, and that company has managed to diversify its growth you know, trajectory across many different areas, not just immunology, but also neuroscience, oncology, um, you know, uh, aesthetics, Botox. I mean, you know, they, they are really putting up, you know, putting forward some massive growth and their dividend yield right now is 4.1%, which will compete against any bond right now. Um, and with the growth that's expected and the growth of their yield that they've had over the last decade, you know, this is an interesting one that's worth holding. Okay. AbbVie, you mentioned the, 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 the autos trade there. Anything else on your radar with regard to where you can find some value for next year? Absolutely. You know, something that just has no correlation to uh, growth interest rates. Um, we think the genomics news was really interesting. Um, and if you look at the genomics space right now, there's a lot of ways to play it. Obviously, CRISPR is the biggest name. Um, and I think that that's the name that we are interested in. Um, this is something that, you know, just got uh, with Vertex Pharmaceuticals, just got the nod from F for FDA approval to treat sickle cell. Um, anemia and sickle cell is one of these, uh, you know, one of these uh, afflictions that has almost no treatment possibilities. So, you know, this is, has the potential to change the world. And they have also oncology potential. They have um, potential to treat lupus. I mean, really, really difficult to treat drugs. And finally, getting FDA approval. And this is one that has been a huge investment for decades. And uh, it's starting to come to the fore as something that has blockbuster potential. So, you know, we think that this kind of a name is something that really doesn't matter what happens in the economy. These, you know, these drugs are going to be hugely beneficial and in demand. All right. Gina Sanchez with the stock list as CRISPR Therapeutics, AbbVie and Auto Home as well. Thank you very much. Happy holidays, Gina.
Happy holidays. All right, coming up on the show, three more names on deck with results out. You see them right there. Our trader is a buyer of two of the names that you see on your screen, one for a very specific reason. Earnings exchange is coming your way later on the show. And as we head out to break, take a look at Bitcoin prices, up more than 4% so far, hitting a 20-month high earlier today. You can see they're 43999 just shy of 44000 uh, on some continued optimism that the SEC will approve a Bitcoin ETF in the not-so-distant future. Bitcoin just around 44000 again. The exchange is back in two minutes. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's your CNBC News update. The Venezuelan government plans to release up to 36 people, including several Americans today, in exchange for the release of an ally of President Maduro from U.S. custody. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was asked about it at his year-end news conference this morning and said he hoped to have some good news later today. President Biden today weighed in after the Colorado Supreme Court decided to remove former President Trump from the 2024 ballot in the state for the primary there. While he declined to talk specifically about the court's decision or whether Trump should be removed from the ballot, he said it was, quote, self-evident that the former president supported the January 6th insurrection. And the electric scooter company Bird just filed for bankruptcy. Its network will stay in operation while it works through a restructuring agreement with creditors. Bird says its European and Canadian businesses are not affected by the bankruptcy. I rode Dom those scooters all around Oslo. They were a lot of fun. I want one for Christmas, but I don't think I'm getting one. All Tyler. right. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. All right. Thank you very much, Ty. We'll see you later on. Coming up on the show, 2023 has been a great year. For GLP-1 drug makers, shares of both Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk are up more than 50% so far this year. But other big pharma names have had a tougher go of it, and 2024 may not prove any differently. We'll tell you why and where one strategist sees the opportunities inside or out of obesity coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Obesity drug makers are soaring this year, but it's a different story for other big pharma names like Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and others. Pfizer shares are down about 45%, and next year's presidential election could position pharma as a punching bag for both parties. Angelica Peoples has that story. Good afternoon, Angelica. Good afternoon, Dom. Yeah, you should expect to hear a lot about drug prices in 2024. 
Two-thirds of voters are saying it's a very important issue for the candidates to talk about, and that's according to a recent poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation. The Biden campaign is already out there talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, which, remember, Biden signed last year. And that law lets Medicare negotiate prices of some drugs. But the problem is that only one-third of voters in that poll say they're aware of the policy. So expect Biden to talk much more about the IRA. And the Republican nominees don't look any friendlier to pharma. Remember that um, former President Trump pushed policies like pegging prices here to what other countries pay. DeSantis and Haley are also talking up the issue. And despite the noise, though, presidential election years actually haven't been as bad for biopharma stocks as you might think. We ran the numbers and found no significant difference in performance from non-election years. That's not to say something like Trump accusing drug makers of getting away with murder won't move the stocks. Back to you, Dom. All right, Angelica, with the uh, look on the political landscape for pharma, thank you very much. Our next guest says that the election, combined with the broader healthcare sector recovery that we've seen so far this year, means finding bargains in 2024 is going to be a tough task. But he's managed to narrow down four names he likes across both biotech and pharmaceuticals. Joining us now is Jared Holtz, the healthcare equity strategist over at Mizuho. Jared, thank you very much for being here with us. This is a story about stock picking because healthcare is so much now about a narrative on obesity versus everything else. Just how hard is it to pick stocks in an environment like this when all the attention seems to be on those GLP ones? Hey, Tom, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, this this year has certainly been marked by the GLP one narrative, um, and I think it'll continue into 2024. We're still you know, in the midst of big product launches, a lot of clinical trials that are going to show the benefits of these drugs over time um, and, and how it influences, um, you know, underlying health for the patients that are taking them. But yeah, I mean, this has been a, a very tricky year in healthcare. care. Uh, the sector is a 25 percent underperformer to the market. And, you know, as of a couple months ago, you know, you had a lot of stragglers. I think the issue coming into the beginning of this coming year is that a lot of the sector has bounced on this beta rally that we've seen more broadly. I think that's why we think it's just very difficult to kind of predict single stocks going forward because you've had a very pronounced bounce back, um, yet there's been underperformance. So I think it's somewhat confounding. So with that broader confounding backdrop from a macro basis on healthcare. What then have you narrowed it down to and why with regard to the relative value shopping list? Well, honestly, I don't love a lot coming out of the last couple of months. Um, you know, this sector has performed, again, below the market, but you've seen medical device stocks rally. You've seen life sciences rally. You've seen biotech go from, um, you know, multi-year lows back to now slightly positive year to date. And pharma, as you alluded to earlier in the program, you know, I think obviously has a lot of issues, you know, from a growth dynamic and obviously with the election coming up, I, I agree with some of the points earlier, may not be so bad, but the noise factor alone probably makes it untenable for a lot of investors. So I'm trying to find stocks that I think are kind of in a, you know, more um, potentially obvious valuation setup. Um, Merck seems like a pretty good stock to me. I think AbbVie and Merck versus some of the obesity names, if you've got to diversify out of these big winners, kind of makes sense. And then Biogen and large cap biotech, given 
the Alzheimer's disease uptake, which I think the street is fairly neutral to negative on because of, of prior missteps, at least there's a storyline there that I think if they can turn it around, makes sense for you know the street to own. All right, Jared, one last point here. If there has been so much attention paid towards obesity drugs, they're kind of like the artificial intelligence to technology, right? It's obesity to, to healthcare. What's the next big trend that you see that is not obesity for 2024 and beyond? Well, I think a couple of things. I, I think one, just going back to Alzheimer's di disease, we're finally at the precipice of this potentially becoming a real market. We've been looking for drugs that are efficacious, and we finally have a couple, although there are some hurdles in, in the way of broader adoption, perhaps. But I still go back to Alzheimer's disease as one. And then I think the, the broader gene therapy class, I think, is very interesting but there are so many players, it's very difficult to predict who the winners are going to be. And there's so much innovation happening that when you find one company that you think has a solution, there's a better solution from another, you know, either public or private player. But I think those are the two areas that I think are, are interesting to consider outside of obesity. All right. And Jared, just a couple seconds before we let you go. Any pick for who wins the AFC? Oh, Lord. Um, it, it's tough to uh, it's tough to pick with my own team. Uh, I'm, I, I guess I'll go with uh, with Kansas City. All right, Browns fan though, Jared Holes from Mizuho. Thank you very much, Jared. We'll see you soon. Dom, thank you. All right, coming up on the show, Disney's making a big bet on the popularity of 2016's Zootopia in China, where it remains one of the highest-grossing imported animated films ever. Eunice Yoon is live on the ground in Shanghai, wild about Zootopia. Eunice. Thanks so much, Dom. Well, Disney has its first and only Zootopia-themed attraction, and it's exclusive to China. More on the Shanghai uh, Disneyland expansion next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Disney is expanding its Shanghai Park for the second time in five years, opening its new Zootopia-themed land to the public today. Our Eunice Yoon is on the ground in Shanghai, Disneyland, to give us a look around. So, Eunice, what are we seeing? Well, Don, the first expansion was for Toy Story, and now this one is for Zootopia. Visitors today were dressed up as some of their favorite characters from the movie, which Disney says is China's highest grossing imported animated feature. Now, the attraction is unique to China, and just to give you a sense of how important it is to the company, uh, some of the very hot, uh, top echelon of power at Disney was here for the grand ceremony, including CEO Bob Iger, as well as the park's chief, Josh Damaro. Now, Damaro said that this park is well on its way to hitting a record in terms of visitor numbers, saying that 13 million visitors have uh, been here so far. He said as part of the company's overarching um, $60 billion investment plan over 10 years, uh, the park is expected to open a third hotel here. Now, uh, Disney's investment runs counter to uh, the trend that we are seeing of souring invest, um, foreign investor 
sentiment, uh, and I asked uh, DeMauro um, as to exactly why uh, they would be opening this land amid this um, uh, tense uh, relationship between the U.S. and China. And he said the company is just really focused right now on the business. And really, Dom, what's been interesting talking to so many of the visitors, uh, people are really excited about the details, about the lands. They're feeling really proud that this is in China. And um, also, I think in terms of the money, uh, people were telling us that they're spending sometimes $430 just today. So it, it really gives you um, a sense that despite all the geopolitical tensions, that uh, the average Chinese, or at least many of them, are still very much like American culture, American companies, and what they have to offer. All right. Eunice Yoon from Shanghai Disneyland with Zootopia. Go inside and get warm, Eunice. We'll see you later on. Coming up on the show, Paychex has only missed on the bottom line once in the past 20 quarters. Near-term options in CarMax imply a more than 8% move, up or down, on the heels of its report. And Carnival shares have more than doubled this year. But with 11% short interest, could we see a squeeze in the future? We'll have the action, the story, and the trade on all three in earnings exchange coming up after this. Welcome back in time for Earnings Exchange. And today we are talking paychecks, also CarMax and Carnival Cruise Lines. Here with our trades is CNBC contributor Jeff Kilberg, founder and CEO of KKM Financial in his festive red blazer. Uh, Jeff, thanks very much for being here. Let's start off with paychecks. Those shares about 15 percent or so since its last report were beat expectations. It also raised its full year guidance. Barclays recently upgraded paychecks, saying it's held strong in the face of industry headwinds, but still warned rising unemployment levels and the tenuous health of small business could be a problem. But it's been on a tear as of late. It has, Dom. And I think that note does speak to the apprehension in the stock. So I want to be a soft seller here. If you own it, I think you take profits. It's only about eight and a half percent of its all time high. So trading at 129 ish, I think it has the ability technically to come lower to about 115. So I'm hoping for an opportunity to potentially buy it at that level. But if you look at ADP, which is twice the market cap on a you know, three-year perspective, they're the same. However, there's opportunities, there's dislocations between these two stocks. I think you have opportunity to get in. So I want to buy this lower. But if you're long the stock right now, I think you have to be protective utilizing calls, owning put spreads, or flat out selling the stock here at this level. So that's a consumer strength economy play. You say sell paychecks on that softer basis. Let's talk about CarMax, another consumer-ish play. Shares are up 3% this week. But Wedbush cut its earnings estimates, writing it expects weak used car sales and an income miss from CarMax's financing unit. Not to mention competition is set to ramp up as Amazon will allow car sales on its platform next year, Jeff. And I'm going to look through the other lens. This is only about 11% off its all-time high, but I want to be a buyer here. And it's interesting. It is somewhat expensive on a forward PE, trading about 26 times, Dom. But I think there's momentum in the stock. Technically, it's taken over its 50-day and its 200-day moving average. So I think there's more room to run. And the one thing we've learned in Q4 is that if a stock has momentum, you do not want to be on the wrong side of that trade. So sell paychecks, buy CarMax, and finally, let's talk a little bit about another consumer-focused name, which is Carnival. Shares are up 131% this year as the post-pandemic recovery in cruise lines continues. Analysts are expecting record booking demand and lower fuel prices to keep the positive momentum going. 
Susquehanna is also eyeing Carnival's debt schedule, noting that $2 billion in debt is maturing next year with another $2 billion coming due in 2025. So what's the take on Carnival? Is a lot of the optimism already priced in? I think if you cue a little modest mouse float on, I think Carnival has the ability to continue its trajectory upwards, Dom. So I want to be a buyer here. And more importantly, I think they've just done a great job of tackling that debt. They got debt laden. And it's, yes, it's 40% off its all-time high. So I know it's having a tremendous year, but there's more room to run. And when you think about cruises, you know, people are getting surprisingly more aggressive in their travel schedule. I just found out, uh, well, I guess Santa Claus will be telling me here shortly that we're going on a cruise in 2024. So first-time cruiser myself, I think people are looking to find different experiences, and that's where they can participate. But this stock, if you look at, you know, it, from where it was, it trades at a discount to Norwegian Cruise Line. So I think you have to be very considerate. This is a trade. This is not a long-term investment because this chart from 2021 to 2022 to 2023 has been quite a roller coaster, Dom. All right. So those are the calls that are on Paychex, CarMax, and Carnival Corp. Jeff, if I might turn your attention to the broader market commentary, it's the time of year when we look forward to 2024 and the things that we could see. I wonder what your take is on the melt-up that we've seen in the markets overall and this idea that there is just no concern about where the equity markets are going. I'm looking at my screen at a CBOE volatility index, which measures that volatility in the S&P 500. It's at 12 and change right now. The lowest point it's been over the last five years is an 11 handle. What gives? Why, are, why, are there, why is there no concern in the equity markets well, right now? I think there's two lenses to look through when you talk about VIX. And when you have an understanding of where the VIX is coming from, if you look just about 12 weeks ago, it was up over at 22 and there were some concerns. But here, down at this low reading level, I don't think it's complacency, Dom. I think it's truly an option reading mechanism that's going to allow the next 30 days of expected volatility to be dampened. So I think there's cautious optimism. You've seen rates relent. If you recall, I had a very lonely view about two months ago that the 10-year note, which was above 5%, would come back to 4%. And here it is. So you're seeing the, the fruits of that rate relenting. I think the market continues to move higher. Are we stealing some of the returns from 2024 right now? I think the answer may be yes. So I don't think we're going to see 2024 be linear. But as long as rates have the ability, the Fed finally flinched and went into their pivot. So I think this is allowing some of these names. But I think you're going to find 2024 themes carryover from 2023. So the AI undercurrents, I actually put a piece out today on Options Pro talking about how Tesla is going to continue to move higher. So I think there's a lot of different themes, but it's going to be a stock picker's market again because we saw such sector dispersion in 2020. That's going to carry over, but rates will drive the boat. That bond leadership is what I look for again in 2024. All right, Jeff Kilberg with the Outlook on 2024. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, sir. Happy holidays, pal. All right, thank you, and you too. We've also got a quick news alert on Toyota. Reuters is reporting that the automaker is recalling one million vehicles in the U.S. over a problem with a sensor that could result in the airbags not deploying as designed. No direct stock impact so far from that news, but shares of Toyota are down about a percent or so in trading today. Well, right now, the markets are losing a little bit of steam. The Dow is still up roughly 31 points as we stand in the markets right now. That's just about flat on the session so far. That does it for us here on The Exchange. Power Lunch is coming up next. America's most beloved billionaire has been crowned the only one of six with a positive favorability rating in our latest economic survey. We're going to tell you who that billionaire is. Power Lunch starts after this quick commercial break. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, 
same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.